Turn your what clocks back to 1 a.m. So set your clocks at what 2 a.m. You have to get up and set it back get for them it to be up. official. Get up and then... 2 a.m. 2 a.m. You got to get up and say, then it's suddenly 1 a.m. You get so to, you don't feel so bad you're up at You get to live that hour all over again. Because it's not really saving anything, of course. Yeah, it's, why is it even called that? It's a delusion. It's, it should be called getting up at 2 in the morning turn your clock back to, <laughs> to 1 a.m. 1 a.m., exactly. Or forward in the spring. Yes, leap forward. I don't forward, understand. Why do we do back, it? They say it's forward. for farmers, but farmers get up no, un- farmers, ungodly hours no matter what. You know, farmers don't care about it. They're up at 5 no matter what time it really exactly. is. Cows don't observe it. Sleep at the same time all the time. That's what I say. How many of you say... Screw daylight savings time. Lynn, I noticed that you did not raise your hand. Are you in favor of it? Well, I can believe it's, it's dark later. Okay. Man, a few words. Just said a few in there. I like it when it gets dark later. Okay. But they never hear me The breeze hasn't time To stop and hear what I say I talk to them all in vain But suddenly my words Reach someone else's ear Touch someone else's heartstrings too I tell you my dreams And while you're listening to me I suddenly see them Alright, who is it? It's, it's Who's singing? It's very, very soft. I can soft. see us on an April night. Young Sinatra? Looking out across a rolling farm. <laughs> having supper in the candlelight. Walking later, arm and arm. Who's singing rather nicely? And I'll tell you how I passed the day. Thinking mainly how the night would be. Then I'll try to no, find sorry, the words to here. say Last people at home. All the <laughs> things you mean to me I tell you my dream And while you're listening to me I suddenly see them Come true You're wrong. It's Clint Eastwood from Paint Your Wagon, and he's talking to the trees, although they don't listen to he. Clint Eastwood, wasn't that sweet? All right. In all the news that isn't for November 2nd, uh, 2019, 
Uh, Google buys Fitbit for $2 billion when they could have got one on eBay for 90 bucks. <laughs> of course, being Google, they'd buy eBay first, completely screwing the cost savings. So there you go. You know, the number of steps you take in life is engraved on your karma, I think. It, it doesn't really matter. What's the point in counting them? Each person has the number of steps actually engraved on their karmic record. Probably, yes. yes. Good, good steps and bad. They're all there. And I don't care if it's electronic. Counting your every step is way neurotic. <laughs> so Fitbit should really measure your neuroses, I think. Then it would be useful. You know, in other news, Americans split between impeachment and impalement. <laughs> uh, 11% of Americans wonder if a peach is involved. Uh, Trump has been sent a formal impeachment invitation so he can wear the ill-fitting tails he failed to impress the queen with. So he's got a... It's nice that it's formal. Yes. Gives it a little more... Gravitas. Gravitas is the word that I couldn't think of. Elizabeth Warren says she will raise $52, $52 trillion for her health care plan by selling Earth to Ferenginar, the fourth planet mm-hmm. of the Ventaris Idrillion star system, Star Trek, uh, where it always rains, by the way. So having a planet like Earth where it rains, but not always, would make Earth a destination planet for Ferenginarians. By the way, Ferenginar is Yiddish for Fermished. All right, okay. Trump changes primary residence from New York to Moscow <laughs> because one treated him very badly and one treated him very goodly. Yes. Uh, the Nationals were invited to the White House where Trump wants names and Social Security numbers of all the boo birds at National Park. It's going to be tough to get all 55,000 by Monday, but good luck to them. Chinese man chops off own finger after snake bite. Doctors say it was unnecessary, which says to me that it is sometimes necessary to chop off your own finger. So they, they got to watch these headlines, you know. Jeep, Ram, Citroen, and Peugeot combined. Whoa, what is that going to look like? An 11-year-old changed election results on a replica of Florida State website in under 10 minutes. But on the upside, it took an 8-year-old 30 and all the Skittles he could eat. So I don't know. 11-year-olds don't vote. What's the problem? I guess now they, they do. Can, they can change yeah, yeah, the votes, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. The nation's report card gives Trump an F and getting along well with others. House, White House Ukraine expert sought to fill in the ellipses, dot, dot, dot. Okay, he was a war hero, but he was not an English major. And I'll tell you, it takes some training to fill in an ellipses. It does. Speaking of sounding terrible, George Papadopoulos, the Trump coffee fetcher who lied to the FBI about his Russian contacts in 2016, has filed to run for Congress to replace Katie Hill. I don't know if 12 days in a Wisconsin country club jail is qualifications enough for the job, but looking around Congress, sure it is. Fuagua. Say fuagua. Every time this comes up, I feel so. I know. Say, just say it, please. Say No, say fuagua. Say fuagua. Yeah. Again? Fuagua. What he said has been banned in New York City restaurants. Fortunately, it's sold from carts in Jersey, so they'll... And finally, and I mean that, Joe Biden is seemingly losing interest in his presidential run, spending far more time with his record player. A lot of Glenn Miller coming out of his room. Ah. 
on the jug. Oh, they don't write them like that anymore. Little brown jug. I hope you're not tired of the apocalypse because we're just getting into it for one thing. But uh, there's been a lot of books on it, but none quite like Hollow Kingdom. And Kira Jean Buxton, the author of Hollow Kingdom, is joining us right now to tell you how a uh, crow named Shit Turd can turn things around when it puts his mind to it. Hi, Kira. Are you there? Hi, I'm here. Yes. Good morning. Do you prefer Kira Jane or Kira? Uh, just Kira is fine. Oh, okay. Kira Jane's usually uh, me being in trouble with my dad when I was little. <laughs> you know, you get the full name. Yes. Was that, was that when growing up in China? By the way, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I grew up in, uh, yeah, mostly Asia and the Middle East. Yes. And Dubai predominantly, and uh, Jakarta, Indonesia. Yeah. How did that happen? Was your dad in the uh, international uh, service? He was. Uh, he worked for an oil company. Oh, he did? So we bounced around a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, that's quite amazing. Howl Kingdom, not just another apocalypse book. Because it's, no. it's funny, <laughs> it's got a talking crow, it's uh, got a, a really a revamped view of Seattle, which, which is nice, I think. You know, it's kind of a, a Seattle makeover. Or make under. Make under, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Seattle is now your hometown, right? So there must be some special glee in, in having the apocalypse strike it. Uh, yes, it, it, very much so. I think, uh, you know, I like to say about Seattle that I wasn't born here, but I came home. My love letter to Seattle in many ways, even though I do sort of trash it apocalypse style. Yeah. All right, there's a few things to consider. In fact, there's a lot of things. This is a very, it became, you know, I started reading this, and I thought, well, this is pretty funny. You know, there's a, there's a bird <laughs> named XST, shit turd, a crow, to be exact. Yeah. And uh, his dog Dennis is there, too, but their, their owner is having some physical problems, some symptoms of something that's been going around and is quite incapacitated. And the, the bird, of course, is trying to, uh, flying into the drugstore and bring back various things, anything you can find. But they're not working. So immediately we know we're in some, it's, it seems like comic. But then as we get into it, then we realize what's going on here. Things really get complex and heavy and, and scary. And uh, the complexity of it is, it, it does sort of lure you into thinking, well, this is some kind of like a black comedy or something. But it's, it's more than that. Yeah, I think, um, I think certainly it's, you know, yes, it's funny and dystopian. And of course, this crazy bird, this crazy crow named Shit Turd, which is so absurd. Um you know, this, this, this name that's been given to him by his, uh, his owner, Big Jim, and in general that this crow doesn't sort of associate with being a crow. He's, he's so pro-human. He just wants to be a human. And uh, so certainly there's all these humor elements, but, but really it's, 
it's an exploration of, you know, uh, how I feel we sort of become disconnected from the natural world, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so this idea that this sort of uh, very pro-human crow has to face the fact that, you know, he has he, he has no connection to the natural world and, and has to sort of go in and, and, uh, and as you say, you know, find, find a cure for Big Jim, but more than that, sort of try to, try to save humanity is what, what his ultimate goal is. Right, right. And he considers himself to be human, somewhat human. Or a, yes. mo- a mofo, as they're referred to in the, in the book. A mofo, yes. yes. I, I had a lot of fun with that, this idea that, you know, his owner, Big Jim, is kind of, you know, a, 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 a good old boy, and he, you know, he loves his Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, and, you know, he's, he's you know, got pretty colorful language, and, and so shit's sort of sort of taken on these things and, and loves our species so much that these things are sort of a delight for him, you know? Mm-hmm. That when I when I gave him the name Shit Turd, I, I really didn't actually think this novel would get published. I had I wrote this. This was the thing I wrote, thinking no one would touch it. Who who would come near a book that you know has a protagonist, as I like to call him, called Shit Turd? Right. And uh, but no, no, it's it's uh, you know publisher was on board and and you know we've uh, optioned the TV rights. So right. it's yeah, it's Shit Turd full steam ahead. Yeah. If, do you think they'll keep the name? I hope. So, yeah. I think so. I, I think they will. Right, let's get into the whole the, the, the psychology of all this that's, that's going on here. There's something in the air, literally. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's the, the, the apocalypse is coming, and it's striking humans in particular. So, yes, absolutely. And, and of course, the first, you know, uh, understanding and inkling of this that Chitzert has is that Big Jim, uh, his eyeball sort of rolls out of his head, and, um, you know, there's kind of an innocence to shit turd. And he says, he thinks, you know, like, hmm, something's a little off here. And as you say, goes out to, to Walgreens to get some supplies that may or may not be any use, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, and then as he sort of ventures out, he realizes that this is something a little bit more widespread. And I, I took a little different, I played, I played with the idea of, um, you know, changing sort of ideas that have been, covered in the sort of pantheon of, of zombie uh, apocalypse uh, literature and TV shows. And so how the uh, this virus that has spread is transferred is a little bit uh, unconventional. Yeah. Can we say how that is? Does that, that ruin the surprise to say how that virus... No, I don't think that's fine. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's through technology. It's through uh, uh, screens and phones. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is, I love, by the way, the whole notion, because I keep thinking people are zombies basically walking around staring into their phones and having their ears plugged with whatever I those know. are called. And I no know, one, I, feel, I feel the same way, and yeah. I, I'm, you know, I find myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how um, sort of attached to my phone I am, and I think that was me sort of exploring that, too, this idea that, you know, I feel like we, we've never been more sort of connected to one another uh, through technology, but we've also never been has disconnected with sort of what's going on around us and um, and certainly, you know, what the birds are doing and what's going on outside our doors. And, you know, as a writer, I, I have days where I sort of don't even, you know, I realized I was having days where I, I wasn't even going outside and, and seeing what was happening with the weather or, you know. So, yes, that's, it's absolutely a, um, an interesting thing to explore. Is technological addiction is definitely a theme. Yeah. And even having a, a, a crow as such a, a mystical figure, or a uh, you know, but in most ancient times, crow was a symbol of great things like power That's and right. 
and uh, messenger of the gods, even that sort of thing. Yes, and, and and even a connection to ancestors. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very interesting, and I, I think I, I think I'm always a little fascinated by that. I'm always fascinated by you know, and I do explore it in the book. Is is this these prejudices that, that that one can have, you know? And I I think it's interesting that even sort of the etymology of of like sort of collective nouns of animals is fascinating to me. The fact that we say a murder of crows, and that comes from just you know, deciding that crows are dark and sinister and attributing this collective noun that, you know, isn't as cute as, a, a for example, a cuddle of koal- koalas, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. A, as S.T., let's call him that, uh, discovers not, not all crows are even the same. He, he runs into college crows, and, and fortunately they all talk. Or at least, do they talk or they communicate without speaking? And I think it's a mix. Yeah. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a mix. I think ST is our sort of touch point. He's, he's sort of multilingual in the animal yeah. world, as it were. Yeah. But he runs into these, what, UW uh, Seattle uh, college crows. Yeah. Who are, who are based on a real, you know, I live quite close to the uh, UW Bothell campus. Yeah. And there, there they have a, a roost of about, they think conservative estimate is 16,000 crows. Why is that? It's um, it's interesting. It's restored wetlands right behind the college, so they all meet and they touch down on the ground, and they which they call it a pre-roost aggregate, and they all chat together. Um, it's very civilized. I thought I've, I've been to see it. It's amazing. Sixteen thousand crows. Yeah. Um, I can't. I couldn't imagine getting sixteen thousand people together and having everything be so peaceful. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, then they go to the wetlands because it's, it's a it's a safe area for them to sort of huddle together for the night. The other crows he meets along the way have seen him as, as sort of an Uncle Tom. Yes, uh, some of them see him as a traitor. traitor. Yeah, absolutely, because he's so sort of, uh, sort of firmly, uh, you know, seated his life in in this human world. Right, um, and he's forgotten how to you know sort of communicate um, and and tune into this uh, sort of uh, natural Twitter that that they call Aura. Right, Aura. The sea talks as well. Yeah, so the communication in the in the in the sea is echo, and then under the ground is web. Is and, web. and you know, this is you know, this is me trying to uh, sort of explore real communication networks that are happening. You know, I was so interested and fascinated by the fact that you know trees communicate and send messages to each other, and you know, food and through the mycorrhiza, which is the fungal network underground. Mm. Um, and then even, you know, I spend a lot of time, I have two wild crows I hang out with, which is a lot of fun, and, uh, and some other birds outside in my yard. And um, I'm noticing that they're constantly in communication. Yeah, and, they are. you know, they're, they're, uh, my juncos will let the crows know when there's a red-tailed hawk. And I'm just fascinated by this idea that there is this constant communication happening. And yeah. it's there for anybody to tune into at any time. It's amazing. And they are very mm-hmm. smart. Incredibly, fairly yeah. smart. My my crows they they know my car. They swoop down when I'm driving down the hill and sort of accompany my car sometimes. And there are three of my car in my neighborhood. I can't tell it apart without reading the license plate. <laughs> but they seem to always know. St becomes sort of like the prophet of, of of freeing everyone, all these animals who are under human domination, locked up, locked away. And he takes how how does that happen? That he takes on the mission to to free them. That's a big jump. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he sort of has to go through this tough, um, you know, he's searching 
for the human and to see and, and for help. And he's looking around Seattle that is, you know, a very different place now. And, you know, humans have degraded and changed and have become, uh, have lost sort of themselves, as it were, in this, in, I, I hesitate to use the word zombie, but that's, you know, kind of what we're dealing with. Um, and he ends up uh, having, meeting this sort of uh, <laughs> oracular uh, octopus who, um, who is so, kind of sort of a, a, alludes to a prophecy that, that SP is, is a part of, that he must go forward and save the domestic animals which are, you know, the, the animals that we, we would leave behind um, if something happened to humans that are dependent on us, and um, that's SP's mission, ultimately. And that's the journey. So it's like every man going through the uh, Valley of Despond here. That's right. With Dennis. That's the our little sister, yeah. And, and we shouldn't dismiss <laughs> Dennis the dog, who is not, you know, who becomes very much a part of this whole thing. They're, they're t- the two of them. That's his Sancho Panza, I guess. Yeah. Dennis is sort of seen as this, uh, and certainly described by S.T. as this, you know, lesser being, this, you know, dopey dog. He's a bloodhound. Um, and I think most importantly, he's an under-exercised bloodhound when he's living with Big Jim. And uh, so when Big Jim's eyeball falls out and S.T. realizes that, you know, his Walgreen uh, contraband hasn't helped, um, <laughs> He and Dennis kind of go off together into this world, and and it's an interesting thing to it was an interesting thing to explore too. Uh, SP has many many prejudices. For example, he thinks penguins are useless because they can't fly, you know, and um, and he also thinks Dennis is this sort of uh, dopey idiot. So it was, it's very it was interesting to explore their relationship and how that changes as they as they sort of team up together and and face this world that is you know quite terrifying. Yeah, and he has, he has all of Big Jim's prejudices. Hence he does. the mofos. <laughs> yes, he's inherited all of Big Jim's ideas about things, and I think that's interesting. I think in terms of, you know, what are... I was thinking about, certainly in terms of myself, what are the things that I've sort of absorbed or, or um, you know, decided upon that, that when I look at deeply are, are sort of absurd, you know? Um, yeah, so yeah. certainly uh, issues of, of identity... And, um, you know, certainly uh, this quest and climate change, I explore a lot of it. And it, it challenges the reader to, to, to drop his hope for humanity and look more at, at the hope for, for, life, for animal life and for plant yeah. life, for everything ex- other than the humans. Usually we're looking for someone to save us, obviously. Yeah. But it's about saving the natural world. Yeah, I, I, I think I was feeling that, you know, most of our storytelling is, is very anthropocentric. It's the story of, you know, and certainly in uh, sort of apocalyptic and dystopian fiction, it's this idea that these, you know, few remaining survivors have to kind of uh, be exceptional and, and, and duke it out at the end of the world, and, and one hero, you know, breaks through, and, and we like to think, you know, we, we read it, we love it, we like to think that we'd be that person, you know, and I think in reality I'd be the first gone, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but I thought, you know, I, I, I worry about what's happening in the face of climate crisis, and right. I wanted to think about what would happen to the natural world. Um, and I did a lot of research about it that I thought would be very depressing and heavy, but, but what I found was that there was hope, that, that it, was, it was fascinating to look at what, would, what it would look like, the world without us, 
yeah. um, from the safety of uh, you know fiction, and while there's still time to make changes. Yeah, can I ask you to read a bit from your book? Because I, I think that would really give people an idea of of how this plays out and what it, and what it sounds like. Absolutely, sure, I would love to. Um, I'm going to just jump into the first chapter, um, which is from the, the point of view of uh, St. Our, our shit third crow. So St. A small craftsman home in Ravenna, Seattle, Washington, USA. I should have known something was dangerously wrong long before I did. How do you miss something so critical? There were signs, signs that were so slow as that, that amber lava that swallows up a disease-kissed evergreen. Slow as a rattlesnake as it bleeds toward you, painting the grass with belly scales. But sometimes you you only see the signs once you're on the highest branch of realization. One minute, everything was normal. Big Jim and I were playing in the yard. We live together, you see. It's a platonic relationship with a zesty sprinkle of symbiosis. I get the perks of living with an employed electrician in a decent neighborhood of Seattle, and he gets his own private live-in funny man. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, which so happens to be a favorite of mine. So, Big Jim and I were in the yard. He had a past blue ribbon beer in hand, classic Big Jim, and was stooping intermittently to yank out a weed the size of a labradoodle. Things grow heartily in our state of Washington. Emerald moss, honey crisp apples, sweet cherries, big dreams, caffeine addiction, and acute passive aggression. We also legalized pot, to which Big Jim likes to poignantly screech, Fuck yeah! Where was I? Right. A summer evening glaze of gold varnish coated our yard with the fat frog fountain and that shitty little smug-faced gnome I've been trying to sabotage since I moved in. And then, Big Jim's eyeball fell out. Like, fell the fuck out of his head. It rolled onto the grass, and to be honest, Big Jim and I were both taken aback. Dennis, on the other hand, didn't skip a beat, hurling himself toward the rogue eyeball. Dennis is a bloodhound and has the IQ of a dead opossum. Honestly, I've met turkeys with more brain cells. I suggested to Big Jim that we out Dennis because of his weapons grade incompetence, but Big Jim never listened, intent on keeping a housemate that has zero impulse control and spends 94% of his time licking his balls. Dennis's fangs were within a foot of the eyeball as I snatched it, balancing it on the fence for safekeeping. Big Jim and I shared a look, or sort of three-quarters of a look now, because obviously he only had a single eyeball. Whilst making a mental note to add this to my petition to get Dennis evicted from our domicile, surely once you've tried to eat your roommate's eyeball, you got to go. I asked Big Jim if he was all right. He didn't answer. What the fuck? said Big Jim as he raised a beefy hand to his head, and that was the last thing I heard him say. Big Jim retired indoors and didn't finish his Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Again, signs. He spent the next few days in the basement of our house where the PBR fridge is and also the freezer with shitloads of meat in it. Then he didn't eat. Not one of the delicious ducks or deer he lovingly shot in the face. Things seemed even more severe when he missed the monster truck show he'd been crowing about for weeks. I tried to reason with him, tried to get him to eat a part of a banana. I took care of the moldy bits because he's picky about those. Some of the Doritos I'd helped myself to, and even some of idiot Dennis's kibble. Nothing. Then the pacing started. 
Big Jim started to traverse the periphery of the basement, shaking his head to a melancholy tune like the sloth bear at the Woodland Park Zoo. Initially, I assumed Big Jim was trying to wear a circle into the basement for conduit installation, which he's very proficient in. But his one eye was now staring into oblivion, and he stopped talking to me, and his drooling became worse than Dennis's, which is really saying something. I'd like to note that during this time, a time of great emotional duress and general uncertainty, Dennis did absolutely nothing except whiz all over the lazy boy and yarf on the carpet. I did my best to clean it up, but really he's not my responsibility. The earlier signs were more subtle, only seen with the hindsight spectacles that Big Jim yearns for after every Tinder date. Before the eyeball evacuation, Big Jim started to forget things. He forgot a few appointments, then his wallet, and even his house keys, which he blames me for because he thinks I'm a giant klepto. Hey, I'm just a fellow that likes to build on his hidden collections. Who doesn't enjoy the finer things? He told me that some of his words were stuck, that they had fused to his tongue. When I offered to orally investigate, I was largely ignored. He became lethargic, a subtlety that perhaps only I would have noticed, seeing as Big Jim has the physical motivation of a taxidermic sloth. But I know him well, and I saw the difference. He stopped walking Dennis, which had disastrous consequences for the couch cushions. May they rest in peace. The runaway eyeball signified a turning point in our lives. I cashed the eyeball in in the cookie jar in case he could use it later. But Big Jim was never the same again. None of us were. I hesitate to go on for fear that you'll judge me and not want to hear the rest of my story. However, in the interest of full disclosure, I feel a duty to tell you the truth about everything. You deserve it. My name is Shit Turd, and I'm an American crow. Are you still with me? Crows aren't well liked, you see. We're judged because we're black, because of our because our feathers don't possess the speckled stateliness of a red-tailed hawk or the bewitching cobalt of a blue jay. Those stupid fuckers. Yeah, yeah, we're not as dainty and whimsical as hummingbirds, not as wise as owls, a total mis- misnomer, by the way and not as adorable as the ham-beast-bellied egg-timer, commonly known as a penguin. Crows are harbingers of death and omens, good and bad, according to Big Jim, according to Google. Midnight-winged tricksters associated with mystery, the occult, the unknown, the netherworld, wherever that is. Portland? We make people think of the deceased and super-angsty poetry. Admittedly, we don't help the cause when we happily dine on fish guts in a landfill, but hey-ho. So, the truth. My name is Shit Turd, ST for short, and I'm a domesticated crow raised by Big Jim who taught me the ways of your kind, whom he called mofos. He gave me my floral vocabulary and my indubitably unique name. He taught me to say some mofo words. Because of the aforementioned Tinder misadventures, Big Jim and I spent quality or rather quantity time together, and I have an array of tricks under my plume. I know about mofo things like windows and secrets and blow-up dolls. And I'm the rare bird who loves your kind, the ones who walk on two legs and built the things you dreamt of, including the Cheeto. I owe my life to you. As an honorary mofo, I'm here to be utterly honest and tell you what happened to your kind, the thing none of us saw coming. That's wonderful. That, That is the opening of the book. First champ. Yes. Thank you. We, yes, we don't, we don't even have people here, and they applauded. That's I mean, we have some mofos in the room, actually. Hi, mofos. 
What 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 bothers me is that I have many of the of the symptoms that Big Jim was suffering. Oh no! Yes, <laughs> words are sticking, fused in my tongue, and I'm lethargic. I have some of that too. Yeah. Yes. So far, my eyeball hasn't <laughs> popped out, but that I don't could happen. Well, it's an amazing journey, and it's an amazing. It's a really amazing novel. It's funny, and it's uh, it's it really goes deep in the and it's sort of into the mood that the nation is in now. For one thing. That everyone thinks we're on the verge of something. This could be this well, thanks to a certain someone. Yeah. Um, yes, and and certainly also the you know the the facts that are coming out from the IPCC about climate change and that we stand mm-hmm. to lose so many species and um, you know they talk about you know the Anthropocene and and the naturalist E.O. Wilson talks about you know the next stage which would be the Aramocene, which is the age of loneliness. Hmm. And, you know, the idea that, that we'd lose species and I, I just, I, I can't, I don't want to be around for that. <laughs> I no. think the biodiversity is, is so essential. We're, we're all very connected. Yeah. yeah. Kira, thank you so much. The, the novel is Hollow Kingdom. Kira Jane Buxton, thanks for so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.